Thank you, guys. And I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 1 as we continue our study in the book of Romans. And you have some notes in the worship folder, so I invite you to take those out and follow along with where we're going. You know, one of the things that happens when you preach through a book is that uh, you sometimes come across passages that are uh, challenging. Sometimes you come across passages and you go, man, this is, I can't wait to preach on that. This one's a little bit harder um, a passage to, to preach on. But last week we looked at a very personal part of the letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Romans, uh, the church there. And the focus we, we learned from him uh, last week is the gospel. And he says in verse 17, uh, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And Paul there is quoting the prophet Habakkuk. Um, in chapter two, who says that the righteous or the just shall live by faith. And in the new, and this is on your outline, uh, if, if you're filling in the blanks, I hope you are. In the New Testament, like the Old Testament, righteousness came by faith. We will see this very clearly in Romans chapter four when we look at the example of Abraham. Um, the Reformation started by Martin Luther. Um, it was really by Martin Luther meditating on verse 17 of chapter one. The just shall live by faith. And Luther realized as he meditated on that that he could not earn his salvation. Uh, what he had learned as a priest was not uh, the truth. And in verse 16, Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation. And so the Greek word for power is dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. And it means power or strength, uh, force or authority. And that used, it's used over a hundred times, that word in the New Testament. The very first time it's used is in uh, Matthew chapter 6 and what we know of as the Lord's Prayer. And it says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the dunamis, the power and the glory forever. So the message of the Bible is that power belongs to God. The gospel has the power to save our lives. It has the power to change our lives. And in the verses that we're going to look at this morning, Paul takes us through the reasons why we are all without excuse before God. So let's read our passage beginning at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may, what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. This is God's word. Um, In seminary, I took a course called Critical Readings in Modern Atheism and Skepticism. And we read, uh, at the time, many of the modern atheists and skeptics. One of the books we read was a book by a man named Bertrand Russell that was entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And he says this in the book, and I quote, There is one very serious defect in my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. As depicted in the Gospels, he writes, Christ clearly, certainly did believe in everlasting punishment. And then Russell goes on to say that Socrates didn't believe in hell and seems much nicer than Jesus, and so you should follow Socrates and not Jesus. The one thing that Russell never dealt with in his book is the resurrection of Jesus. That's the most important thing. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, that uh, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. And so that's one thing that he did not deal with. Um, That's what separates Jesus from Socrates. Jesus rose from the dead. Socrates did not rise from the dead. I've heard people today say that a loving God cannot be a a God of judgment or hell. And they consider these truths that we just read as backward ideas. The idea of a God of wrath, a God of judgment is not in line with the beliefs and the values that our society has. You might even think, you know, I don't really like the message of some of the things I just heard from Romans 1. Um, You know, when you're having a discussion with someone, uh, if you're really in a discussion, you can disagree with the person that you are having the discussion with. Uh, When we are listening to God through his word, there's really um, no discussion. You can disagree with him, but uh, you can't expect God to agree with what you think. We may sometimes not like what God says, but God doesn't custom make laws for you. He loves you uh, right where you're at, but he loves you too much for you to stay there. And his goal is that you become like his son, that you become like Jesus. He expects you to obey him. 
Uh, we live in a cancel culture and there are people that would love to cancel God, but you cannot cancel God. The epitome of absurdity is to think that you can. You may not like what this text says, but it's not my opinion. Uh, you've got on the top of your outline that this is a message that comes from God through the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome and to us. So look at verse 18. It begins with the wrath of God. Uh, I heard recently about an atheist who wanted to debate, uh, have a public debate with a, a Christian. And the Christian agreed to do that on one condition. And that is that each of them bring along three people who would be willing to publicly share about how their lives have been completely changed by their belief in either atheism or Christianity. Uh, and the atheist decided to not do the debate. When we're talking to someone about the gospel, one of the things that's useful is our own personal testimony. That can be a, a powerful tool in our toolbox as uh, fishers of, of people. Uh, there's nothing wrong with starting there with our testimony. In fact, it can be a very good thing to do, but our testimony is not the gospel. It's not at all what Paul does here. In fact, there's a quote on your outline by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's a little bit long, but it's on your outline, so follow along uh, as I read it. It's important. Why is Paul ready to preach the gospel in Rome or anywhere else? He does not say it is because he knows that many of the Roman Christians are living defeated lives and that he's got something to tell them that will give them victory. He does not say to them, I want to come and preach the gospel to you in Rome because I've had a marvelous experience and I want to tell you about it in order that you may have the same experience. Because you can if you want it. It's there for you. This is not what Paul does. There's no mention here of any experience. He's not talking in terms of their happiness or some particular state of mind or something that might appeal to them as certain possibilities do. But this staggering, amazing thing, the wrath of God, and he puts it first. It is the thing he says at once. So the God of the Bible is powerful. The God of the Bible is a caring, loving creator. People today desire, though, a God that they don't have to fear. They desire a God who doesn't get upset at them when they sin. The God of love, as described in the Bible, is one who hates anything that harms those he loves. Uh, and so a God of love, and this is on your outline, a God of love must have the capacity for anger. We learn in the Old Testament that he is a God who is slow to anger. But why would God give us laws and then no consequences if those laws are broken? God's anger is not like ours. Our wrath, our anger, is always compromised by the presence of sin. God's wrath is holy. It's, uh, in his response, uh, he is, is not a God who flies off the handle. Uh, 
uh, his anger is never sinful. His anger is perfect. Uh, it's against our sinful and rebellious nature. Uh, God's anger is completely in line with his character as a God of love. The biblical writers speak of God's wrath frequently, um, and they view it as one of God's perfections alongside of his other attributes. As a matter of fact, it's the theologian J.I. Packer who wrote this, it's on your outline, one of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor with which both testaments emphasize the reality and the terror of God's wrath. Yes, God's wrath is terrible, but it's also measured. It's precise, and it is completely just. His wrath should be understood as the perfect expression even of God's unchanging love. Because God is love, he cannot just stand by while evil consumes his creation. So what are the objects of his wrath? Well, verse 18 continues, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. The objects of God's wrath are the godlessness and the wickedness of, of people. And the order may be important there because uh, godlessness and then wickedness because moral decline often follows theological rebellion. When we rebel against God, it, 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 we're declining. We decline. First, when, when I talk to people who are uh, atheists, and, and I find out about their belief, they've come to their belief not because they've reasoned themselves there, but because they're living immoral lives and they can't afford to have God in their life who is a just God and a God of wrath, a God of, who gives us laws that we need to obey. We all notice that this is what's going on in the world. We can, we can just look and see around us uh, the sinfulness of man. In fact, it was G.K. Chesterton who said, sin is the only theological concept that can be 100% proven. Just look around. Just turn on the television. Listen to the news. Sin is why parents run out of patience with kids. Sin is why people act promiscuously to deal with loneliness. And the list could go on and on and on. No matter how hard we try, no matter how many good deeds we do, no matter how much we try to modify our behavior, we cannot fix our sinful hearts. Uh, again, on your outline, godlessness is attitudes and actions of irreverence that lead to contempt. In other words, it's a suppression of the truth. And wickedness or unrighteousness is a violation of God's law. Uh, Paul is thinking of the law that came through Moses that was intended by the nation of Israel to follow, for us to follow. What the apostle Paul is doing here is explaining the reason for how the Gentiles got into this awful darkness that they were in and how God's wrath is revealed against them. And so verse 17 has the phrase, the righteousness of God is revealed. See that in verse 17? And then in verse 18, it opens with the words, the wrath of God is being revealed. And so, again, on your outline, the wrath of God is the counterpart 
to the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That's what we believe. We believe that God in his mercy takes the righteousness of Christ and he credits it to our account when we put our faith and our trust in Christ alone for our salvation. How does that happen? Because Christ took our sins on himself. He paid the punishment that we should pay. He paid it for us when he died on the cross. So God doesn't try to stamp out anyone who looks like they're having fun. That's not what the wrath of God is all about. God's wrath is directed not against goodness, but against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people. That's what the verse says. And then Paul goes on to give specific reasons why people, why we are without excuse before God. So the passage not only helps us understand unbelief and the consequences of unbelief, but it equips us to live out our life in this unbelieving world. It equips us to know how to share our faith with unbelievers. And the first specific reason for the wrath of God, number one on your outline, is that we suppress the truth. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So this isn't a passive suppression of the truth. This is an active suppression. This is like holding something down. It's like the kid who took his dog into his room to spend the night against his parents' wishes. And when he heard his parents coming down, he took his dog and he put his dog inside of his toy box and he sat on top of the toy box. And as his parents were talking to him, you could hear the dog very clearly whining and thumping his tail, but the little boy was acting as if nothing was happening. That's what it means. That's what Paul is talking about here when he talks about a continual and aggressive striving against the truth. We're holding it down. Yes, and this is again on your outline, disease and natural disaster cause great problems, but many if not most of the world's problems are caused by people committing sins against each other. Murder and theft and hostility and, and uh, hostility between people and between nations. Violence. The list goes on. Our problem is sin. And the next two verses, verses 19 and 20, tell us exactly what it is that, that unbelievers suppress. Verse 19. Since, we, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So what mankind holds down, like that boy with his dog in the toy box, is the basic knowledge of God as one who creates and as one who sustains his creation and supports his creation. And verse 20 says clearly that God's invisible qualities are his eternal power and his divine nature. And these are what nature reveals. And we're reminded as we look at creation, especially here in San Diego, 
of the gap that there is that exists between us and God who created us. Between us and the beauty, the power of God in creation. And they have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. So Paul is saying, look out there. Look at nature. Look at the design. This didn't happen by accident. And he's carrying on the thought from verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And the idea of making it plain is it's not some secret revelation. How can you look at creation and not believe there's a God who created it? I recently saw an old video of uh, President Reagan who uh, was saying that he did not understand the atheist mindset. And he said he had the unholy desire to invite a bunch of atheists over and serve them the most fabulous gourmet meal that, he had ever, that has ever been made, and then after dinner, ask them if they believe there was a cook. <laughs> David sang, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Theologian uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, one of my favorite theologians, wrote a book entitled, If There is a God, Why Are There Atheists? And it's an attempt to understand people who reject God. And Sproul's answer is interesting. He assumes the truth of Romans 1, talks about that, that people know of God. Uh, he simply says that people don't want anyone to be their boss. Uh, it's a little bit like what I said when I've talked to atheists. It's people who don't want anybody to be in authority over them. Sproul puts it like this. He says, <clears throat> the New Testament maintains that unbelief is generated not so much by intellectual causes as by moral and psychological ones. The problem is not that there is insufficient evidence to convince beings that there is a God, but that rational beings do not want to make Jesus their Lord. They don't want anybody, as I said some time ago, that my, a, a phrase I learned when my children spoke to each other, you are not the boss of me. We don't want anybody to be our boss. And Paul finishes verse 20 with these words, so that people are without excuse. And on your outline, Paul is saying that it takes a significant effort to deny the existence of a powerful creator God. It was John Calvin who wrote, by saying that God has made it manifest, he means that man was created to be a, a spectator of this formed world and that eyes were given him that he might, by looking on so beautiful a picture, be led up to the author himself. So let me give you an example of that, <clears throat> what Paul's saying here. You're driving down the road and you see a sign that says, detour, turn left. And you decide to not turn left, to go straight. And you ignore it. <clears throat> Just drive on. And there happens to be a policeman there waiting for you. And he pulls you over and he's starting to write out a ticket for disobeying what the sign said. What's your excuse? What do you say to him? 
you might argue that you didn't see the sign, but that would carry very little weight with the policeman because he knows that the sign is well-placed. It's in bright colors. You couldn't have missed it. Besides, it doesn't make any difference because as long as you are driving the car, the responsibility is yours for seeing and obeying the sign. Uh, and what's more, you're accountable to it. If, if, if you ignored the sign and you recklessly race on and somebody gets injured, you get injured, your passenger gets injured, <clears throat> somebody else gets injured, or you destroy property, uh, ignorance is no excuse. My dad, who was an attorney, used to tell me that all the time when I said I just didn't know. Like that, you can't use that as an excuse in a court of law, and you can't use that as an excuse before God. So Paul's teaching us about our eternal relationship with God. And he's saying, first of all, there's a sign. And the sign is that it's God's revelation of himself in nature. Don't ignore the sign. And second, we have a vision of that. Although we might be blind to a lot, uh, we can nevertheless see the revelation. Of all places in San Diego, we have no excuse. Because beauty is all around us. So if you choose to ignore it, as we all do, apart from the grace of God, then the disaster that follows is our own fault. That's what Paul's saying. That's what God is saying in his word to us. And your feelings of guilt are well-founded because you have no excuse. I have no excuse. No one has any excuse before God. As humans, it seems like we have this limitless ability to make excuses for our bad behavior. When someone is accused of something, we often try to shift the blame or avoid taking responsibility and we'll say things like, it wasn't my fault. I didn't know. I had good intentions. Uh, or, you know, you're just being too hard on me. <clears throat> and I think the two most difficult short sentences in the English language are... It was my fault, and I'm sorry. We seem to have a hard time saying those sentences. God created people to have a relationship with him, and this need causes us to seek our creator. And the only reason that we don't is that we are purposefully ignoring this desire that God has placed in us to know him. We're sitting on the toy box and we're holding it down and we don't want to let it out. And so we are without excuse and we suppress the truth. And then secondly, we're without excuse because we pervert the truth. That's number two on the outline. We pervert the truth. Verse 21 tells us how perversion to idolatry came about. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. So what that means is that there was a time when idolaters saw God as all-powerful and infinitely greater than themselves. But they refused to worship God for who he is, and they reduced him to their own level. And you may believe in God in a general way, but do you go through life as your own authority? Or do you submit to the authority of God in your life? Do you read his word and do you seek to obey what he's given you to do? 
we take the logic of Paul to the next level. If there is a God who created you, and since, you gave, since God gave everything to you by sending his only son to die for you and your sins, you owe God an eternal debt. The only thing that you can give back to someone who has given you everything is everything. That's what we should give to God. And verse 21 continues, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And the term heart here includes moral judgment. It includes intellect. It includes reasoning power. That's what the Bible means when it says heart. And so not only was our moral judgment darkened, but our intellectual abilities, our moral abilities have been affected very negatively, as we all know, by sin. We lost sight of God, and God is reflected in the natural world. So we don't have any excuse. And idolatry always falls short of giving people any idea of what God is really like. Verse 22 says it like this. Uh, Look at verse 22 in your Bibles. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. In other words, they pretended to know it all, but they were illiterate regarding life. God's given us his word as like, it's almost like an instruction book. Here's how to live your life. The root word for fools is the same Greek word, and you'll, you'll love this, from which we get our word in English, moron. It's a pretty ugly term that, that refers not so much to one's intellect, but to our moral condition. Why are we fools? Because if you look out there and you say, yes, obviously there must be a God. Just look at creation. Then the natural response, the, 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 maybe the supernatural response, would be for us to say, God, you can have all authority over me. I will give you all authority. So either there is no God, and this is all an accident, it'll be a little bit like saying, well, there was a, an explosion at a paint factory and out came the Mona Lisa. That's how absurd that is. There is no God and it's all an accident or there is a God and we owe him everything. And what, we're, what they were missing is the Christian message and that's what Paul is saying. And Paul is essentially saying this, God created you and even though you haven't been living for him, up to now anyway, at least up to, to this point, he loves you and he has come down into history in the person of Jesus and he took the punishment you deserved so that you're saved from God's wrath and you can live an abundant life, an eternal life and and, and live a life now that is full of purpose that God gives you. That's the message. And then in verse 23, he shows the downward spiral that the perversion of idolatry brings. Verse 23, and they exchange the glory of, of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Have you ever wondered how in the world people could bow down before a, a statue or a stick or a bird or bugs? You know, there's a group of people in the world that worship bugs. People worship all those things. And how, how could they do that? The Bible says because they've turned away from the truth of God. And they went into darkness because of their foolishness and they started worshiping all these other things. 
And, and the modern Western world doesn't worship those things, but we have our own idols that we've set up. Money, sex, power. Those are our idols in the Western world. What's the correct attitude with which to come to God? It is only to come to him in humility. We have to remember that God is God and we are not God. And we learn that humility from Jesus. Just read Philippians chapter two. And this leads us to the third reason that we are without excuse and that is that we distort life itself. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. So the culture that Paul preached to and ministered to was at least as bad, if not worse, and immoral as we are today. Uh, The group of us that traveled back in October in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul uh, went and visited uh, Pompeii. And even though I'd been to the countries that we had visited, I'd never been to Pompeii. And archaeologists have uncovered there sections of that city which are so obscene that they generally do not take visitors to see it because of of how awful it is in parts of the city. Um, Our group did not go to see that. Um, But as people turn away from God, whether it's in the first century or today, they go deeper and deeper into darkness. The Bible talks about man being totally depraved. What is total depravity? What does that mean? It means it's the opposite of that there's always the ability to improve, there's always the ability to deprove, to get worse. That's what total depravity is. You know, we think we've seen it all. We think we've seen the worst of the worst. And then in our minds, I know that I've heard things, uh, laws that are going to be passed. I think that is absolutely absurd. That'll never pass. And then it passes. I'm like, what in the world has happened? It's just the total depravity of man. There's always room for deprovement, for things getting worse. Paul could have used many examples here, but he chooses sexual sin. Maybe because it's so visible. Uh, but it is an excellent example. Sex is a wonderful gift that God has given to the human race, but it's to be enjoyed in the context of a marriage relationship and not outside of marriage. Uh, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sanctification is just a big theological word that means becoming holy, becoming like Jesus. And the foundation of being sanctified is doing the will of God. And Paul says on the top of that, uh, that encompasses all of life. But on the top of that list is sexual purity. And so you have this on your outline. The Greek word for sexual impurity is pornea, and it is very broad to include any sexual relationship outside of the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. So the logic here is very clear. First, there's a suppression of the revelation of God, and then there's a perversion 
towards man-centered idolatry, and then finally there's a perversion of man himself. In other words, man rejects the witness of God in creation. And having done that, he goes on to live in the very opposite way that God intends for us to live. This doesn't always hold true, but I heard someone say, if you want to find a principle of God, just take a principle of man, a principle of the world, and reverse it. And chances are you've got a principle of God. This is the first of three times in the next few verses that the Apostle Paul uses the phrase, God gave them over. That's actually pretty scary. It's like God saying, okay, you want your way? You can have it. And we just keep going lower and lower. It's like he's given us over as a society. And it seems to me that basically we see God's wrath or what we would hope to be God's wrath all around us. We sure see the sin that's there. People doing what is unnatural with one another. Like one commentator said, men and women have slipped to such depths that it would be even a disgrace to animals for them to have such conduct among themselves. Animals treat themselves better than we treat ourselves. We who have an intellect and we who can think and reason. We who have a soul. And of course we know that God's wrath is not yet completely worked out. It will be. I heard the account of a farmer who was an unbeliever, antagonistic toward anything spiritual. And he happened to own a piece of land next to a local church that he uh, plowed and planted things. And he found great joy on the Lord's Day in running his very loud tractor right next to this church. Spring came and corn sprouted and it was more than knee high by the 4th of July and he had a beautiful harvest uh, that came in the fall uh, in October and he had this amazing satisfaction so he wrote a letter to the pastor and he said, obviously God doesn't exist because I uh, don't believe he exists and I have consciously gone against what God says about keeping the Lord's day holy and sacred and look how he's blessed me with such an amazing crop. And the pastor wrote him back. Uh, it was just a sentence. And he said, God does not settle all of his accounts in October. God's wrath is not yet completely worked out, but it will be one day. And there's another aspect of the wrath of God uh, that we see in, this, in the way Paul structures these verses. So this is it. It's just as the righteousness from God was best revealed in the death of Christ on the cross, so too is the wrath of God best revealed on the cross. If someone isn't a Christian, then it's because they're suppressing the truth about God. They're pushing it down. And God's own revelation of who he is, uh, and, and of who he is, and they will just, people just will be given over to idolatry. And that will ultimately, they will ultimately be held responsible for their actions against God, for that decision to go against him. It was Martin Luther, and this is on your outline, who said, whatever your heart clings to and relies on is your God. 
So let me ask you, what is your heart clinging to? What do you rely on? That's your God. God is not a passive parent. He will hold us accountable for our, for our sin, whether we acknowledge his presence or not. And the consequences of our rejecting him in favor of sin are far graver than we could ever imagine. And you've got this on your outline. If people die without Christ, the Bible teaches that they will spend eternity apart from him in hell. Jesus said this in John 3.36, whosoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You know, just by way of conclusion, the, the core beliefs of the Protestant Reformation were called the five solas. Sola is a Latin word that means uh, alone. So we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the Bible alone has the unique authority to speak to these things, to speak into our lives. And this is all done to the glory of God alone. That's the fifth. So Christ alone means that we are saved through Jesus Christ alone. You know, this whole sermon in one sense is a summary of what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6. A verse that I'm guessing almost everyone here has memorized. If you haven't, you should. Jesus is speaking and he said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's very narrow. Uh, it's very exclusive. And that, by the way, is the nature of truth. The nature of truth is that truth is always very narrow. And this takes us right back to that verse, and to salvation, being in Christ alone. And that is the core confession, it always has been, of the church for the last 2,000 years. And so the question is, are you under the wrath of God? Or do you cling to the righteousness of God, which has been revealed to you in Christ alone? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us everything we need to live a life that is pleasing to you. Thank you for opening our eyes to understand that you are the creator God who has eternal power. We honor you and we worship you for sending Jesus and that through Jesus we can participate in life with you, abundant life, purposeful life a full life, and eternal life forever with you. Thank you that out of your love you sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin. And if there's anyone here this morning who, is, who doesn't know you personally, will you draw them to yourself? I believe you're in the process of doing that if they're here this morning. And they would respond to you and respond to you in faith and say, Jesus, I need you in my life. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Um, and this is from the end of Romans. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you in the faith, to the only wise God, 
be glory forevermore. Through Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Amen. So be it. God bless you. Thank you for being here. And uh, please introduce yourself to the people who are sitting around you. And have a great day.